Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning, early morning, I should say, in Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Deborah Braudigan, who's back on the show again. Deborah, for those of you who are not familiar with her, is a professor of international political economy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International uh, Relations, or Studies, I think it is, SICE, and also the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative. Many of you, though, particularly those in the China-Africa space and students and you know interested observers, will probably know her from her 2010 book, The Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of China in Africa, which was uh, on the must-read list for pretty much everybody in the business. Uh, now, coming out uh, this fall, soon, uh, is a new book, uh, Will Africa Feed China?, published by Oxford University Press. I think pre-orders are now being accepted on Amazon. And uh, Professor Braudigan, we are thrilled to have you back on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. It really is. And uh, I just finished the book this afternoon, so right under the wire, probably like a lot of your students, kind of crashing uh, right before class. And, uh, and, and it was funny because as I was going through it, I kept kind of feeling a deja vu again in going back over a lot of the work you've done over the years which is debunking a lot of the myths about the Chinese in Africa. And you're writing on your blog, you've talked about uh, the misperceptions and the mistruths that there are about Chinese prisoners working in Africa. And now here we are about agriculture, which is the focus of your book. Let's start our conversation with some of the very provocative headlines that I think prompted you to address this topic. And I'll read a few, and then we can kind of dive into the to your premise here. Chinese farms control most of Zambia's agriculture. That's a direct quote from a headline from your book. China recently purchased half the farmland under cultivation in the Congo. Another news outlet broadcast that. China now has extensive holdings in Africa, including pending or attempted deals for millions of hectares in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Tanzania, with many thousands of Chinese workers brought in to work on these lands. So you kind of really right up front put out the, these headlines that have come both from China and the West, and even in some cases from Africa, have really scared people about the Chinese and what they're doing in Africa when it comes to agriculture. And you've defined four key premises. And I'll read through four of all four of them very quickly. And then Kobus and I are going to kind of ask you to break them down so that people can understand really what you're trying to get at. Premise number one, the Chinese have acquired large areas of farmland. That was kind of stated from the headlines that we just saw. Premise number two, the Chinese government is leading this effort through its state-owned firms and sovereign wealth funds. Number three, the Chinese are growing grain for export to China so that Africa is going to literally feed China. And finally, the Chinese have sent or plan to send large numbers of Chinese farmers to settle on the continent. So let's get started just by talking about this issue of land acquisition. The Chinese have acquired large areas of farmland in Africa. That's a very, very popular perception. Is it true? It's not, Eric. If you added up all of the farmland that the Chinese supposedly acquired or were requesting, it would be about 6 million hectares. And that would be about 1% of all of the arable land in Africa. That's a lot of land. And uh, I, together with colleagues and a team of students, went through 
what we found in the media, we put together a list of the 60 largest land acquisitions that the Chinese supposedly had or were about to get. And we examined each one of those. And so, and this took about three years because we did what I call forensic internet sleuthing, which is really deep digging on one story on the internet and trying to find as much as we can, looking at company websites, looking at government websites, and of course, media stories to try to track down the reality of something. So some of the cases were actually quite easy to track down. We found they weren't Chinese at all after looking for about five minutes. But other ones took a lot more work and they took field work and interviews, uh, phone interviews and interviews in person. So at the end of that, we found out that there was actually, from what we could see, about 240,000 hectares, which is just a small fraction of 6 million, in which Chinese companies had actually acquired land. So they haven't acquired much land in Africa. And just to kind of frame this, 240,000 hectares is what you said was about twice the size of New York City. Exactly. And, and so if that's in fact the case, that the reality is so divergent from the myth, where did this come from? Where do these people at The Economist, The Voice of America, some of the Chinese newspapers get the idea that China's buying millions of acres of farmland? I think it, it largely comes from two very large potential projects. And each of these uh, was... Um, the brainchild of entrepreneurs who wanted to do biofuels. So they had nothing to do, very little to do with the government. One company was uh, partially state-owned, but is run in a very entrepreneurial manner. And that's uh, Zhongqing Telecommunications. Um, It's a telecommunications firm, but they developed an uh, energy arm and they went into biofuels. So they came to Africa, but the, interestingly, the representatives that came to Africa were not Chinese. They were uh, an African employee of Zhongqing Telecommunications who was trying to convince them to invest in Africa. And the second really big headline is one in the Congo, and that's the one that caused some people to say that China's got half the arable land in the Congo. This also was a biofuels project, and it was a real uh, effort, a real interest, and it was by... Um, uh, also by a Chinese company, and uh, it and it was supposed to be seven million hectares, or bar, about three, or excuse me, seven million acres, about three million hectares, and uh, that one also didn't go forward. Um, so it seems to me that there is in in a lot of these headlines this uh, you know something that we've been complaining about a lot over the years um, a conflation of different Chinese uh, actors you know Chinese companies the Chinese government China quote unquote um, you know kind of everything being lumped under this this idea of China. Um, I wonder that actually brings and brings us to one of your second your second point that this idea that the Chinese government is leading the effort um, to you know kind of to essentially take over Africa um, you know kind of through state owned firms and sovereign wealth firms. I wonder if you could if you can unpack that a little bit. Well, I think a lot of people think the Chinese government is leading the whole effort uh, to engage with Africa, and in many ways it's true. Um, For example, the Chinese do have white papers on their Africa engagement. Um, They do engage 
very closely with African governments. And uh, we can see this in the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, the FOCOC, which, as you know, Cobus is going to be held in South Africa this coming December. So every three years, there's a big summit meeting between the Chinese government and African governments that also involves uh, business meetings on the side. So they have a big business part of that FOCOC. So the Chinese government is very active. However, they have, um, and they have instruments to push Chinese companies and induce them and incentivize them to come and invest abroad. However, they can only do so much. And what I see happening on the ground is that this is really the companies. So the Chinese government puts the tools out there. They can foster Chinese um, groups of Chinese entrepreneurs to come to Africa to look around and do business trips to investigate possible projects. And they can offer finance, um, although they're getting much more um, careful about the kinds of uh, financial projects that they're willing to uh, put their loans into, and particularly investments. They're, very, they're monitoring the risks very carefully. But I think the idea that they're taking an e even bigger role here came, again, from some mistakes that, that some journalists made. And one of them was that uh, one journalist in particular put out the idea that uh, the China-Africa Development Fund, which is will be one day a $5 billion fund, and it's for investment across the continent in all sectors. Well, he got the mistaken idea that this was a $5 billion fund just for investment in agriculture. And so I think from that, and that came out in the Atlantic, so that was a very prominent uh, magazine here in America. And I think from that, in, in part, this idea came out that they had invested immense sums in African agriculture, which is something that, that also got into the media. And it actually, it isn't true. So the investments have been fairly minor. There is a, a Chinese joint venture company that is um, dedicated to African investment in agriculture. It's called the China-Africa Agriculture Investment Corporation, C-A-A-I-C. And this is relatively small, though. It's got a, a cap. It's capitalized at one billion renminbi, which is um, less than two hundred million dollars. And they haven't used uh, very much of that so far in their investments. And they've been looking for commercial opportunities in Africa, but they've been finding it quite difficult. A lot of this is understandable from the Chinese point of view, because this is a country, and I think a lot of people maybe on the outside don't understand, but that has about 20% of the world's population with maybe 4 to 5% of the world's arable land. And so food security in China is a legitimate concern. In fact, now that we're talking about, you know, desertification in the north, uh, there's drought in, in parts of the west, where which has traditionally been parts of the breadbasket, uh, flooding in the south, and so China's climate change is also affecting its food security. So the, uh, the underpinning concern about who will feed China, because if China can't feed itself and grow its own grain, where would that come from? So this brings us to our third point in the book, that the Chinese are growing grain for export to China. The Africans are going to grow for, uh, literally, will Africa feed China? But you point out also that Africa itself has its own food security issues with only about 13% of the food that it creates uh, is able to feed its population. So talk to us about this idea of grain exports from Africa to China to help relieve China's growing dependence on imported food. 
this is one of the the deepest ironies of the conventional wisdom because it's it's circulated by people who really don't understand that much about Africa being a food deficit region. So Africa is deeply dependent on food coming in from outside the continent. Um, I think right now the imports of food products coming into Africa is about thirty billion dollars a year. I know just in the case of rice alone, they import. 10 million tons at over between five and six billion dollars. So it, the idea that the Chinese would come and grow their rice in Africa and then export it to China is, is deeply problematic because right now Africa is importing its rice from Asia and also from the United States, interestingly. So the, um, the food picture is, is not a, a happy one across the continent. And so the Chinese coming to Africa are, are really not, the companies are not interested in growing food for export to China by and large. However, some have come in because African governments in some parts of the continent have put in place incentive structures to try to produce more food locally. And so this has attracted some Chinese companies to come in and do what I'm calling import substitution agriculture. Because under these tariff barriers, they can have a greater profit in being able to produce rice right there uh, in the continent. So, for example, in Cameroon, a, a Chinese company was very interested in producing rice in Cameroon because the price of rice in Cameroon is quite high because the government wants more rice to be produced locally. But why would we, it be look, so – I'm sorry to interrupt you, but why would it be threatening to Africans or the, the, the observers around it who seek to defend Africa for Africa to be producing rice or grain for export when, in fact, lots of countries want to export their agriculture? I mean, you're in the United States, which probably sends more agriculture to China than any other country in the world. Uh, it seems like it would be a good thing for the trade balance if Africa was, in fact, actually selling grain to, to China. I think it's because the issue of food and food security in Africa is is so precarious and so sensitive. So, for example, I quote one Chinese official who was asked about Chinese land grabs in Africa, and, and he said, you know, how could you export uh, food from Africa when people are starving? This is very sensitive. So that's, um, I think, also the impression that um, I have a quote in the book that came here from Washington, from someone um, at the Atlantic Council, and then there was a, another professor in Southern California, and both of them were quoted by the Voice of America. And they said about one uh, alleged Chinese farming investment in, Zam in Zimbabwe, they said uh, Chinese farmers are growing grain in Zimbabwe to export to China while the Zimbabweans starve. So that wasn't actually happening, but... The, the impression is still out there, and we widely believe this in the West, that across Africa they're starving, or they're starving from time to time. So this becomes quite politically sensitive. Um, I, I think it also, you know, kind of just to add to that, I think there's also a lot of um, a lot of political issues around land tenure in, in, in Africa. You see that a lot in, in South Africa, where there's a lot of pressure for, for previously, ex like land that has been previously expropriated by colonial or apartheid governments to be returned to, to communities. Um, and then these communities have a very strong emotional connection with the land, but they don't necessarily have either the skills or even the desire to necessarily necessarily farm that land, despite the fact that, you know, kind of there isn't that much arable land in South Africa. South Africa is a, you know, it's a water-scarce country. Um, 
you know, kind of just just that as a comment. But like, you know, kind of I, um, in in connection with that, I think your fourth point that um, this this story that there are millions or a hundred million Chinese people going to be exported to Africa to to farm here, like all of these these kind of millions and millions of Chinese farmers that are supposedly coming to Africa. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that narrative and, you know, kind of what do you think the, the kind of political underpinnings of that narrative is? Um, let me get to that in just a, a minute, Kobus, because I want to say a few more things about food, because we did some interesting research on this. One of the things we did was to look into the trade flows. So we wanted to track down. We couldn't find any food uh, exporting farms, but we thought maybe there's something we can't find and we'll look at the data. And so we looked at trade and we looked at exports and we found that that actually in terms of food flows, it's coming from China to Africa. So if anyone's feeding anyone, it's China still feeding Africa. But this wasn't rice and other kinds of, of, of uh, grain crops. It was uh, largely processed food. So there's very higher value foods coming in. Uh, South Africa is consuming some of them and other parts of the continent as well. And then we looked into what was Africa exporting to China. And we found that the the largest value product last year actually was a food product. But it wasn't the kind of food product that you might be thinking of. In fact, it was sesame seeds. So if there is a voracious Chinese appetite for African food, for African uh, agriculture, it's in sesame seeds, which I <laughs> thought was interesting. The other products that are coming from Africa uh, in terms of agriculture, are cotton, uh, tobacco, and rubber. So those are the biggest. There's also cocoa coming in. So the the Chinese have a have a, a hankering for African chocolate as well. So that's another point about the food trade. And then I looked historically into the food trade, and I found out something else that was interesting. In the past, uh, in Zimbabwe, before they did the the chaotic fast track land reform, they actually exported. Uh, food they exported grain to Asia so and all around the southern African continent they exported but they exported to Indonesia they exported to other parts of Asia and they even exported to China during one year so this is was interesting as well It, it says to me that it is possible for African countries to export to China they aren't doing it now, um, and that was uh, several decades ago, but they could do it again. And in fact, your own country, Cobus, South Africa, has uh, signed an agreement with China to export maize or corn to China. So South Africa either has already started or will soon start to do that. And Nigeria yeah, also has... Recently, they also recently signed a deal, sorry to interrupt you, to, to, to also start exporting apples. And um, citrus, too, and I maybe think. Also for, for, and yeah, wine. Citrus and, and, and wine and, and citrus, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so all of those are on the... Uh, ex- the, the, the wine and the citrus have already been going out. And, uh, and I think citrus at this point is South Africa's biggest um, food or biggest agricultural export. But... Um, but other countries are interested in doing this. And one of the things I conclude is that Africa should actually be feeding China. And when you look at where Chinese food is coming from, it's coming from the Americas. It's coming from the United States. It's coming from Brazil. It's coming from Argentina. And so Brazil is a huge supplier. And there really isn't uh, a good technical reason why some parts of Africa couldn't be the grain basket um, of the continent again uh, or come up to that point the way Brazil has developed its Cerrado 
for export. So uh, that's just a stop on the food. I do think the potential is there, and I hope it happens as long as uh, Africans are not themselves shortchanged in this process. But they should be doing more in global markets with food. So the reason why they're not is for the same reasons that maybe we're not seeing industrialization and other types of manufacturing develop. It comes down to technology, infrastructure, know-how. What are the reasons, you know, well, you've, beyond, you've beyond the usual suspects that, that are there for why Africa isn't you, developing its agribusiness? You've nailed that, Eric. And I think uh, I told several stories about Chinese companies that actually did want to invest. And then the infrastructure uh, put them off. For example, the company in the Congo, they found that they would have had to bring everything in and out on the Congo River. And they brought a team of Chinese river experts to advise them on that. And the river experts said, you know, it's going to take 100 years to develop this river for true um, commercial transportation. Another company wanted to do a project in Ethiopia, and they were given a, a section, they were given a lease on land. And they went down and they said, there aren't any roads here. And the Ethiopian government said, well, we just expect you to build a road out to this area of land. And they said, that's going to be a little bit too expensive. So they went home. So the infrastructure is a really big constraint. Um, technology, it's there is a lot of technology available that would improve the productivity of African agriculture. And it's even on the shelf. Uh, but the extension services have been decimated in the years of structural adjustment when governments cut spending. Foreign aid has not been going into agriculture in great amounts, so we haven't been helping very much in that area. We've been helping in health, but not so much in agriculture. That's starting to change, but there is a long drought in terms of foreign aid going into that sector. So there are a lot of things that, that uh, in Africa, the continent, as by and large, and there are exceptions, of course, Kenya is very commercially developed, South Africa, Zimbabwe has been, Mauritius. But most parts of the of the continent are still predominantly subsistence agriculture, and that's a, a low productivity, low technology, traditional activity that's been conducted the way it's been being conducted now, the way it has been for thousands of years in many cases. So there are there's a big um, uh, there's a long way to go, and this is actually very controversial and. In itself, as how to commercialize African agriculture and what to do about smallholder farming, and and should it be done in a larger scale or should it be remain on a small scale? These questions have not been decided uh, on the part of African governments and their donor partners. So I expect it's still going to take some time because some people believe that the subsistence moving up to the small scale, the sort of yeoman farmers, they believe that's the way to go, and others think this is really unrealistic. So. I, did, I think the jury's still out on that call. Can, before we move on, can we just get you to respond to Kobus's question about point number four in the allegation that the Chinese are going to send large numbers of peasants and farmers to settle in Africa? Absolutely. Uh, this is widely believed around the continent. And again, we found no evidence for this. There certainly is discussion about it. There's discussion about it in Africa. For example, I show how in Mozambique, um, Mozambican officials and Portuguese investors were very interested in bringing in Chinese farmers. They thought this would be a, a really good and, and profitable move, and it didn't end up happening. There's one large Chinese investment there, about 20,000 hectares, and there are 162 Chinese that have a kind of contract arrangement there um, on that project. So that's a, the largest 
um, constellation or cluster of Chinese, and these aren't even really farmers, they're Chinese uh, agricultural experts that come from the state farm system back in China. But this idea that that Africa has these vast amounts of land and that uh, it's just empty and waiting to be cultivated, this is very prevalent in China as well. And so I do a report on one Chinese um, millet expert who went to Ethiopia to try to do uh, an agricultural project there to do millet trials. And he came back to China and said that China should send a million Chinese unemployed to farm in Africa. This was, of course, not a real serious proposal. It was something that he made at the National People's Congress. And I, re I recorded what the internet traffic was about commenting on his proposal. And it's pretty funny to see <laughs> what the Chinese themselves thought about this. They didn't think it was very realistic. <laughs> you know, kind of. I think also, what, you know, one one of the one of the points I think that you that you that you make very interestingly in the book is how frequently, you know, there's a, it's, it's like reading this kind of succession of very ambitious schemes that then uh, that then you know founder frequently, you know, kind of once once actually arrive in Africa, and one for one reason is as you mentioned the lack of technology, but I think the other. The other is exactly this idea that Africa is empty. That is all this land, and it's essentially it's, it's just people. It just hasn't occurred to people to develop it yet. You know, um, rather than the fact that there is established power structures and community structures and cultural structures that are that are in certain cases quite happy with the way that that it's happened that it's running at the moment. Um, am I oversimplifying that? Today? Well, how do you see the the role of of rural African communities in actually in their interaction with China? In much of Africa, Cobus, there are conflicts in land tenure systems. You have this traditional land tenure, which is where land is allocated by families and by chiefs, and it's done in terms of use rights so that people can get access to land in different seasons. They, um, women can have it during the rainy season, and men can have it when it's irrigated. And there are different ways of sharing land, and there's also a fallow system because in many parts of the continent, land is not that fertile, and so they don't use fertilizer, and they have to let it rest for many years in between cultivation systems, seasons. And so, um, but then this comes up against government's ideas. They want to modernize and, and commercialize and lease land out. In many parts of the continent, the government has declared essentially that all the land is owned by the government. So they have the right to allocate that. And in other parts and other countries, there's more um, give and take and negotiation that goes on between communities and the government. So there are, uh, there are a lot of issues with the land. And um, in, in part, it's I think that that commercial land tenure uh, systems are just not in place across the continent. The kind of things that you have in America or Europe, where people buy and sell land, um, those kinds of private land markets just are not there. And South Africa again is an exception, but there aren't that many other parts of the continent where it's it's widespread, and certainly no country where I'd say it's across the entire country. Well, this brings up an interesting point because over the past few years, there's been a a rather lively discussion as to whether or not parts or countries in Africa should follow China's economic development model. And I think a lot of people focus on the industrial phase of China's reform period, which was really the last 20 years, without focusing on the underpinning of all this, and something you've studied very well, you know, extensively, in the 70s, which really what jump-started Deng Xiaoping's reforms was land reform. 
and the and also this is the case in Taiwan as well, which led for the kind of the put the jet fuel into the economy and letting freeing up the agricultural sector that started the capitalist kind of energy that that was unleashed in China. And so it seems like there are lessons that maybe the Chinese can bring to to certain African countries about how to reform their property and their land uh, land laws so that they can position themselves to have an industrial sector. Talk about that, what lessons might be able to be brought over from China. Oh, Eric, this is deeply controversial. <laughs> because in Africa, the kind of land reform that, that happened in Taiwan or that happened in, in China, these land reforms were very much expropriating the landlords and then redistributing it to the peasants and the small farmers. In the case of Taiwan, they did this um, with some compensation to the landlords because they were a capitalist system. And so they provided um, bonds in Japanese factories as compensation. And the landlords actually did pretty well over time in that because Taiwan industrialized rapidly and those factories became valuable. In China, they basically killed off the landlords you know, this was an extremely brutal land reform. So I think in terms of lessons for Africa, the one leader that's taken those lessons on is obviously Mugabe. And it hasn't <laughs> fared too well for him. Yeah. So, so that kind of brutal, of course, he hasn't killed off the landlords. He's He's expropriated them, and some have been brutalized. Very few few have been actually killed, but they've been driven out of the country. They've been driven off their farms. And this has been, of course, uh, hugely controversial. And so I don't think that uh, any other African government is contemplating doing this right now. But um, it, and it's not so much land reform in terms of redistributing land. In most of the continent, I would say by and large, the, the, the peasants have land. They just can't use it productively. And so it's, it's much more, I think the lessons come from what Deng Xiaoping did, which wasn't so much land reform as uh, giving the land back to family farming and then providing um, inputs for that farming. So they invested a lot in technology, in higher yielding seeds, in having irrigation systems, in fertilizer. And this is what Taiwan did as well. And there's a saying they have in, in Taiwan in particular that people say when they talk about this, they fed the goat while they milked it. So if you if you feed agriculture, if you put inputs in, you can then milk it, you can tax it. And then that taxation can provide you with the the uh, finance that you need to move into agri into industry, and that's what they did in both cases. They they used agriculture as the foundation, and then manufacturing became the leading edge of the economies. And that kind of idea of bringing uh, your agricultural sector up so that it can be more productive, so it can be taxed, and then so that it can move into other sectors and build those up. And the government can do this through directed credit, through the uh, banking system. This kind of idea is really pretty much absent in the African continent. Uh, how, do you, how do you foresee this China-Africa relationship around agriculture proceeding in the future? In the book you mentioned that you know kind of that there is this, the, the model of, of essentially setting up contracts with small-scale farmers and then buying their you know kind of buying what they produce do you foresee that as a, as a possible kind of model that that could you know kind of preserve some of the land tenure that you that you have in Africa now without and uh, while still modernizing it or like how do you see it developing that is definitely the trend right now for Chinese investors. 
they are contracting with African farmers and then they're supplying credit, they're supplying seeds, they're supplying fertilizer and other inputs to them. And then they're um, buying the, the product. So I've, we saw this happening. I had a team this summer in Madagascar and we saw this happening in cotton. It's actually quite interesting because one of the companies that's there is a company, a Chinese company that has a big cotton spinning mill in Mauritius. And so they're now producing the cotton or the African farmers are producing it in Madagascar and they're buying it and they're exporting it to Mauritius and then spinning it there. So it's a kind of industrial value chain that's happening on the African continent. And I think that's that's quite interesting and, and quite promising for the future. We see this, uh, actually one of the most successful companies doing this and the one that's been doing it longest in Africa is in Zimbabwe. And it's a Chinese tobacco company called Tienzi. And they have been uh, providing credit and uh, seeds and fertilizer to the black farmers that have been getting the land in Mugabe's land reform. So what had happened is that so many of those farmers got land, but they couldn't do anything with it because the Zimbabwe government didn't have much of an extension service. And the whole private infrastructure around tobacco had um had partially crumbled. But that infrastructure has been built back up again. You have tobacco um, auctions that are quite vibrant again, and you have the whole tobacco association, in which there are still uh, white farmers participating. That's become quite um, active and, and vibrant as well in Zimbabwe. And for the first time, you have black farmers that are growing the tobacco and doing uh, quite a successful job. I just think it's un unfortunate that the most successful subcontracting arrangement happens to be growing tobacco, which is a controversial <laughs> crop in yeah, America. Is, well, and controversial everywhere, I think. Right, and it's doing it in Zimbabwe. So um, I told USAID that there is something they could learn from the Chinese uh, practice, and I told them about this case, and they said, that's not going to go over very well with Congress. So <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine public opinion wouldn't be too popular on that one. Uh, take us to the conclusion of your book. Give us the three kind of takeaway or four takeaway points that, that you come away with on all of this. I think at the end, after doing this research, research, and uh, although it, it took me about three years to do the really recent research and intensive work on this book, it's something that I've been working on since 1983, because my first visit to Africa to look at what the Chinese were doing in agriculture was in 1983, and I spent a year and a half doing research for my PhD dissertation. So um, at the end of the day, I think that uh, Africa's future is, is there, there will be more Chinese investment in agriculture. And that's inevitable because right now the investment is at very low levels. Uh, but I think that it's not going to be China that determines what happens in rural Africa. It's going to be Africans. And so the, the African governments that, um, that want to take advantage of this investment interest, they're going to need to channel it in ways that are, are going to be good for their agricultural sectors and for their people. And I think they're, they're thinking um, very strategically in many cases about actually how to do this. And I do think in the future that there are very good possibilities that some parts of the continent will become food exporters. And in some cases, this will be reverting to a position that they had before, um, such as in Zimbabwe, where they were exporting food, and South Africa, which is already a, a very well-developed commercial exporter. And in this case, I think there are lessons that they can learn from China. And those lessons are, are not so much in how China became, uh, how they developed rice and how they became uh, self-sufficient in food, but it's how they used foreign investment interest to develop their own commercial agricultural sector, not in rice and wheat and areas like this, 
but in things like fruit trees, in things like uh, orange juice, in things like uh, developing uh, horticulture and commercial vegetable exports and developing potatoes for the McDonald's market and this kind of area. Because the Chinese used commercial interest from foreigners in their agriculture to move their own farmers up the value chain through these subcontracting arrangements. And I think this is something that Africa can learn from China. It's not the lessons we thought they could learn, but it's ones in which I think there's a lot of potential. The book is... But again, oh, and, oh, go ahead. And, but at the end of the day, it's really Africans that are going to be in charge of this process. And it's not going to be China that develops Africa. The book is Will Africa Feed China, published by Oxford University Press. If you'd like a copy, it is available for order on Amazon.com, and I'm sure university bookstores across the world will be carrying it pretty soon uh, for next uh, next semester. Uh, Deborah Browdingham is a professor of international political economy at Johns Hopkins University. She's also the author of The Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of China in Africa. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you, Eric and Kobus. It and was a pleasure for me. Of, of, uh, in the world of academia, I like to make fun of you people a little bit, because most <laughs> of you are not very proficient in the art of social media and blogging and whatnot, but you do stand as an exception there. So if people want to follow what you're reading and writing outside of your, your books and your, and your academic articles, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? <laughs> uh, I have a blog, ChinaAfricaRealStory.com. And uh, there I, I am compelled from time to time to pick apart stories that I see in the media or to reflect on them. And it's really, it's the most fun professional thing I do is to host a blog. I really love it. And, and of course, I'm also on Twitter. Excellent. And what's your Twitter name? Uh, at D underscore Browdigam. Excellent. And uh, also, uh, Deborah is, is one of the featured contributors to our Reporting FOCAC website, reporting-focac, that's reporting-focac.com, where she debunks the myth of Chinese prisoners being sent to Africa. So we have uh, that as well, and we're very, very proud to have you as a contributor there. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You will see me on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate this 24-hour constant stream of China Africa news updates. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesq. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is to log on to iTunes. Soon we're going to be available in the Google Play Store when that becomes available. We're also available on the Asia Society's excellent website, China File. Just go to chinafile.com and you'll find every show, including this one that will be posted there. Uh, and then finally, if you'd like to stay on top of China Africa news, but you just don't want to really dive that deep as our Facebook page is too much, uh, we have an excellent newsletter that goes out every Monday with a very small selection of the top China and Africa stories for the week ahead. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>